0: of a series we've been in called You Asked For. Now, if you join us for the first time this morning and said, Pastor, what is You Asked For it all about? Uh, we, we started this back in the spring. We had forms we put out. We had it online as well. And we asked you, we said, hey, what are the three most common questions you want to see taught about? Maybe we haven't talked about it enough. Maybe we haven't even talked about it at all. Uh, what are those questions? And, and we'll take some time in the fall and uh, we'll walk through them. And so the first week, we, we, we talked about forgiveness. We answered the question, how do I forgive? And you, see, you know, a lot of folks struggle with forgiveness. They can be difficult to let go of pain and hurt that someone's caused you, especially if it's been a very traumatic experience for you, Um, especially if you're someone who's like, hey, I I can't reconcile this relationship with somebody. Like, you know, you can forgive them, but can't run with them. Like, we know people like that. You got to have boundaries. It's too toxic. How do I do that? And so we walked you through some myths on forgiveness, and then we kind of walked through how to forgive somebody in that first week. And then last week, uh, we answered the question of uh, what do Christians really believe? A lot of folks out there want to know what we believe um, from a theological point of view. It's like, okay, yeah, you believe in Jesus. Fantastic. We got that. What else, though? Like, what else do you believe? And so that's a a little trickier, right? Because you only have one Sunday service. Like, how do you cram it all in there? Uh, And I'm not going to lie. We were here for a hot minute last week. (laughs) It was a little long, okay? But we went through the Nicene Creed, and we walked through this basic premise of what believers all around the world believe. There are five essential truths to the faith that Christians of every background, Catholic, Baptist, Pentecostal, it doesn't matter, that we believe about Jesus, that unite us into the kingdom of God. We believe first that there's one God, right? There's one God. We believe in Jesus Christ, his son. We believe in the Holy Spirit. We believe in in the church and in the return of Christ. And we walk through what those were. Um, If you're a new believer, if you have questions about uh, the faith, about a third of our church. Are, are, it falls in that category if they're not believers yet they have questions or they are new believers, I would encourage you to go back and watch that uh, teaching online on our website or you can you listen to it on the podcast that's fine too. But men, make sure you check that out because we, we go through talking about what we believe and then we kind of expand a little bit on each of those beliefs. The most requested topic we save for last. It's, it's, it's the most requested one that came in. Um, it, it just just as an aside, we should be good. But in case parents, if you haven't had the discussion with your kids, now would be a good time maybe to bring them over to Radiant Kids. That's entirely up to you. I'm just throwing it out there, though, just in case uh, you weren't aware what we're talking about today. Uh, but the most requested center uh, topic centered on this question of, of, of sexuality. And, and, and I, I will tell you this, man. I think the the issue of sexuality and where we're at right now, this is kind of like the defining issue, culturally speaking, uh, of our time. You know, when I was growing up, it was all about abortion you know, from a cultural standpoint, you know, are you pro-choice, pro-life, whatever. I think this issue dwarfs that. And I think it does for a lot of reasons. I think one, more people are affected by it. Uh, Two, the church is pretty united for the most part. And where they stood on the abortion issue, we are not on this one. There's a lot of division in the body of Christ right now with this topic. It's really important that we we address it, and so we're we're going to talk about what is God's design for sexuality. What is God's design for sexuality? The number one requested topic that we teach on uh, was this right here. So I want to start by kind of setting the framework that we're going to operate in. These are ground rules, and they're important, okay? Here's the framework we're going to start with. Uh, Number one, this is not a political issue. I know that's tough for some of us to probably listen to today, but this is not a political issue, okay? Uh, I believe it's very much a spiritual issue. Now there's politics being played. You have two political parties that right now as we speak are setting all kind of policies in place, but this is a very much a spiritual issue, not a political one. I'm not going to advocate for any one party or policy over the other. I'm going to do everything I can to give it to you straight from the Word of God and be as as, as truthful as I can with what God's Word outlines. And I will just tell you, I always like what God's word says. Can I tell you that? I just don't. Now, it doesn't mean that I have the, the, the freedom to change it because I don't have that freedom either. I still adhere and follow what, what the Lord instructs us to do and what he teaches, even if I may not like it all the time. And, and so this is definitely one of those cases. So we're going to talk about sexuality in the confines of God's word um, and, and, and really from the perspective of what is God's design for us physically, emotionally, and spiritually because it's more than just a physical act. Um, sexuality encompasses the whole of the person, their emotions, their mind, their spirit. It's, it's, it's everything. And we're gonna talk about this from, a, from, from the confines of how God made us and created us in, in that way. Uh, it, it's definitely a lightning rod for sure. And probably everybody in here at some point this morning will have something they don't like that I'm gonna say. <laughs> it's, just, it's, it's just fine, I'm okay with that. I think the word of God, when it cuts to you, and it cuts to me as a pastor, even. I think when it cuts to you, uh, there's there's things that are like, well, I, I'm a little bit offended by that. You know, Jesus offends a lot of people. The word of God does that, but I, and, and I'm going to stick to it. I, I think churches should be talking about this stuff. A lot of churches don't want to touch it. They don't want to get near it. I think we should. I think we should lead on this issue. I think we should have answers as best we can for these questions that are difficult to ascertain. Uh, so we're going to spend some time talking about it. Before we dive in though, I also want to make sure that uh, we acknowledge this is not, this is very complex. This is not a black and white issue. I think a lot of us think sometimes it is. It's black and white as far as God's truth goes. It's very gray in how you apply it and love and, and treat people. Uh, and, and you'll see as we talk about this this morning what I mean by that. We'll kind of unpack this a little bit. Uh, but it, but it's a pretty complex thing, okay? So uh, let me let me get to you some of the questions that were submitted. Let me just read some of the questions that were submitted here this morning, um, and, and, and you'll get a feel for kind of where we're at. Uh, so I've done this every week so far. I've, I've, I've read some questions that people sent in. Uh, hey, here's the first one. Can, can Christians be gay? Can we have gay Christians, homosexual Christians? Why would God make a man who believes they're a woman if gender is binary. So kind of a little bit of a word salad here, but probably better to phrase this question like this. Is gender binary according to God's design? That's probably a better way to phrase that. Binary being there's two, right? How do I witness to someone who's transsexual? Does God really hate homosexuals? And I'll just answer that one right now. The answer is no, God does not hate homosexuals. We We can just answer that one right off the bat. The last one kind of gets to where we're going to be at this morning, because we're going to cover this in a very broad spectrum. Can you teach on a biblical worldview of sex? What's a biblical worldview behind this? So we're going to encompass kind of a a, a broad stream here today. So here's what we're going to do. I'm I'm, I'm going to bring us on this journey. do a lot of teaching here today, all right? And we're going to start with this basic premise that I think we can all agree on in the room. I think it's very important. We want everyone to know Christ, right? We want everybody to know Jesus, and we want them to walk free from abuse and addictions and all the snares that darkness will set out for them. And we would say, man, we want people who are struggling with their sexual identity or issues to find uh, the, the hope and freedom that they can find in Jesus. We would want them to experience that. So why why do Christians struggle so much with this topic? Now I used to say and believe we struggled a lot with the topic because Christians just were not sure how to respond. Like how do we how do we how do we how do we answer this you know, you know effectively? And I don't know if that's entirely true now. So where we are in 2023, I, I don't know. The world today is vastly different than it was five years ago, ten years ago, right? And there are a lot of competing. Um, I don't know what i the word I want to use, but uh, points we'll say. Maybe tensions. Tension's a better word. There's a lot of tensions that Christians feel from a myriad of different sources, and it frames how we answer this question. So I'll start with this. One's politics, right? We feel a lot of tension with our politics. It seems right now, I think the American people are not there all the way, but an increasing number of people are, are, are doing this. You pick a party, right? Democrat, Republican, whatever. Now, we talked about this last week. They're both going to be in heaven, buddy. So, but nevertheless, you pick one. And What we see right now is that people pick a party and they're all in. It doesn't matter what that party says or stands for, we're gonna agree with them and fight for them and get them in office. Whatever is true is true according to the party. And I see that on the left and I see it on the right. And more and more people are kind of going in that direction. So there's a lot of pressure that says, man, if I talk about an issue like this, it needs to be in lockstep with whatever political association that I have. There, there's tension from education. Depending what school district you're a part of or what college you attend, a certain position gets hammered into you that you have to have and you gotta take. Like you need to be in this particular position, or it may affect your standing at our, at our institution, right? It's corporate. So you're seeing businesses now having positions of tolerance uh, that are that are far more explicit. If you're not on board with anything in the LGBTQ community, it's gonna be difficult. You might get passed over for a promotion. Uh, you might have a, a, a very difficult work environment that you're a part of. Uh, it may make the interview process uh, a place where you're like, you know what? I like this job, I, but but I, I don't know if I can go there. I've got a younger brother who he works in HR, human resources, and 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 he, his company folded, and so he was looking last year for a new job, and he had several interviews lined up. He got to the final round of multiple interviews, and it came down to what what his stance was if he would agree to their DEI policies, which is diversity, inclusion, and equity, right, which covers this kind of stuff we'll talk about today, and and for him, the deciding factor, he actually pulled his name out of most of them because he said, man, I just can't. I can't sign off to some of these views, and I can't, I I will violate my conscience and my spiritual, I, I just can't, and so he walked away from almost half a dozen jobs because he couldn't embrace that it's, it's entertainment and marketing for decades in entertainment and marketing for decades 20 30 plus years right has really hammered this idea that you need to accept certain positions when it comes to sexuality and if you don't you're a homophobe you're a transphobe you're whatever it comes from church If you grew up in a church that was much more conservative, right, um, you almost have this default position that says, well, if you don't live by God's standards and adhere to God's standards, like you're doomed for hell, buddy. Like that's all there is to it. It's super black and white and very like hard and there's not a lot of bends. And the problem with that is you kind of lean more on the judgmental side, don't you? Christians just aren't sure how to respond because of all these different sources of tension that, that you feel. Like, where do we land on this? Someone's going to be unhappy. Someone, it, it, it could make my life miserable. Like, what do I do with this thing? And so here's what I want to talk about today. I, w- I want to show grace. I want us to show compassion. But, but we have to stand in truth as well. And, and, and I think one of the dangers we, we can embrace is, is, is we'll take something where there's tension and we'll decide we're going to go to one extreme over the other. You know, when Scripture, whether it's passages and verses, whether it's doctrinal points in theology, there's a lot of places in Scripture where there exists tension. Where the Bible does not fully answer one way or the other on something. And what a lot of folks tend to do is they say, well, I believe it says this, and they they go to one extreme or the other extreme. When really, you should let that tension stay in place. Let it exist. Leave that tension there. It's there for a reason. So leave the tension alone. Now when it comes to a topic like this, what's our tension? Grace and truth. That's our tension. You can't be all truth, because then you're too judgmental and there's no grace. But you can't be all grace either. If you're all grace, then there's no truth. And how do you how do you really effectively talk to somebody about God and sin and forget? How do you do that? You have to have both grace and truth. Why? Well, the gospels tell us that when Jesus came, he came in grace and truth. Christ came with both, grace and with truth. That's the tension that we have to. To live our lives and that we walk in, and so we're gonna we're gonna do that this morning. We're, we're gonna work, walk in attention of grace and truth when it comes to answering this question of what is God's design for sexuality. And so here's what we're gonna start at. I'm gonna take you to the very first book of the Bible today. Go all the way back to Genesis. Go back to Genesis. first book of the Bible, first chapter of the Bible, Genesis chapter one. Because Genesis one and two, they give us a big picture and a small picture of what God's design for sexuality is like. So I'm I want to take you to Genesis 1, verse 27. Genesis 1, 27. So God created human beings in his own image. Now, the image is important. We're not talking just physically. There's a spiritual component. There's an emotional component to it, right? We laugh, we love, we get jealous, we get... Why? Because God has all those emotions as well. It's implanted inside of us. So he makes us into his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And then God blessed them, and he said, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and govern it. Reign over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, and all the animals that scurry along the ground. Okay, hey, first truth, right? First truth about God's design for sexuality, it's this one right here. Every human being, every person is created in the image of God. Everybody. We are all made and created in God's image. That that should really sink in today. I, the first step of dehumanizing somebody is to look at them as if they were made just from dust. They just appeared. To forget that that individual you're speaking to or disagree with has God's fingerprints all over them just like it's all over you. That God fashioned them in his design and image the same way he fashioned you. God's fingerprints are all over your personality, your emotions, your physical body. He, he, he He's everywhere. He created you. He deeply loves and cares and values you and, and, and this passage of genesis has that big picture of humanity which affirms for every person like they made in god's image but there's more to it i don't know if you thought about this or not but in this passage god gives mankind two directives there's two one he tells man rule over creation that's your that, that's that's adam's job is to rule over creation Be that caretaker. Notice it's not creation ruling over man. Man rules over creation. Okay? That's another topic in discussion for another time. But our job is to be caretakers and rule over what God has made, not the other way around. Two, he gives this directive of reproduction. Multiply. Reproduce. Okay? Multiply. Reproduce. That's what happens in the next chapter is a microcosm of God's design for sexuality. Okay? We get a small picture of of Adam here. See, every creature is made with this ability to reproduce. Except for man, man can't do it. All the animals can do it. You know, they, there's there are plants that can do that. Now there are certain animals that can't. Like I, I realize this. There are hermaphrodites that are out there. But let's be real about that for a moment. They're invertebrates, right? Snails, slugs, that kind of thing. Most of them are parasitic. The overwhelming majority of God's creation involves reproduction with two similar yet anatomically different partners. Okay. And so what happens is that Adam by himself, he can fulfill the first directive. Adam can rule over creation with no problem. What Adam can't do by himself is he can't carry out that second directive that God gave to reproduce and multiply. He can't do it. So what does God do? He creates a partner for Adam. Adam falls into a sleep. God does the first surgery, right? Cuts him open, pulls the rib out, and and he creates Eve from Adam. So what was once impossible for him to do, he can now do. And so this partner, Eve, assists Adam in ruling over creation and she allows for reproduction and multiplication to take place. He, he names this woman Eve. We're going to come back to why her name is important. You may never have thought about this before, but we're going to come back to why it's important here in a second. But Adam, in, in, in Genesis 2.23, he says, and what I always picture to be like Shakespearean vernacular. This, if you imagine this, for like, it's like a perfect scene. At last, <laughs> this is bone from my bone and flesh from my flesh. And she'll be called a woman because she was taken from man it from man so Eve's like Adam she's human but she's different because she's a woman so your English translation says that Adam names her Eve because she'd be the mother of all humanity and that's very true right however Hebrew your Old Testament's written in Hebrew and the Hebrew word for Eve means to give life why does it matter because Adam recognizes I can't give life I can't do that God did not equip me to reproduce in that way. Eve, however, can do that. Through a woman, we can have reproduction complete, and a life can come. A very big difference between Adam and Eve. Okay? Now listen to this next part is it's pretty important. Eve is not just different anatomically for reproduction purposes. She's different because in the act of sex, there exists this symbolic spiritual union between God and man, which takes place. God's design for a man and woman is to come together and to connect physically. So that was what was once originally one. God literally takes Eve from Adam and creates a separate entity. That was once one can come together again. Two people coming together as one. You may not have ever thought about it like this before, but spiritually you're coming together as one. It is almost as if you're having that reenactment of we are now one flesh as it was with Adam and Eve. All right. That's what Genesis 2.24 talks about. Where a man leaves his his, his parents and and, and, and finds a wife and they become one. It's not just a cute verse you say at a wedding. There's something to that. Because in it is is a symbol of a marital relationship where two people are coming together as one, the way that God intended, the way that creation started with Adam and Eve. Okay? I know, we kind of went over something that was just a little bit deep for a moment. But this is important. Here's what this tells me about sexuality, right? In God's design for sexuality, Adam recognizes, again, I can't reproduce without the woman. I have to have Eve, the two come together as one. In God's design for sexuality, there are only two genders, male and female. I know we have different ones that are out there. We'll talk about this in a second. But in God's design, there's only two men and women, male and female. They come together, they unite as one, and they multiply, they reproduce, and that's what results from that unification, is reproduction that happens. So God produces this union physically, psychologically, emotionally, spiritually, between a man and a woman, and that has been his design from the very beginning, going all the way back to the book of Genesis. So let's just pause for a moment and, and talk about the differences, right? Because men and women are very different, right? And so God intentionally makes men and women different on purpose. That doesn't mean that that men are superior, because I I reject that too. Like, men are not superior, you know? It doesn't mean that women can't be engineers and CEOs and that kind of... It doesn't mean that either. What it means is that at our natural core, we as created beings are built and designed by our creator differently. We're just different. And that's not a bad thing or an oppressive thing. That is a fact, it's a fact that stems from creation itself in Genesis. God made us different. Now here's the other thing too, God called all this his creation good. Now what does it mean when God says good? When he says good, it means it was perfect. It was in its intended state that he, he designed. Before sin comes into the world, the way that creation operated was as God intended from the beginning, that perfect state of shalom, as things should be, that everything is wholesome in the way they should be, right? And so God says it's good. Now, I recognize today that, that there is gender dysphoria out there. That's a real disorder that people suffer. And I, I will tell you, man, that my, I, I feel for people who struggle with that disorder, that, hey, I feel like my whole life I've been a a man, but I'm stuck in a woman's body. Or I feel like my whole life I've been a woman and I'm stuck in a a man's body. And I I feel for folks like that. Here's the thing. God doesn't make mistakes. God doesn't make errors. God has called everything he's made, including us, he has called it good. There is an intent behind There is purpose behind that. It's not our job to undo or an attempt to undo, but God has already made and said, this is good. Now, a really tough passage I'm going to read to you in a second from Romans 9. A lot of truth here in this passage, though, that I want you to sink in. Romans 9, 20 21. Who are you, a mere human being, to argue with God? Now, look at this. Should the thing that was created say to the one who created it, why have you made me like this? Right? When a potter makes jars out of clay, doesn't he have the right to use the same lump of clay to make one jar for decoration and another to throw garbage into? He said, Pastor, I don't like that, right? That, 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 that implies that God made some people to have this great, wonderful life and things go well on earth that some folks don't have. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's true. I don't know why I'm born in America. First world problems, you know? We got all kinds of first world problems here in America that we worry about. And people over in, you know, different parts of the planet, they're hoping they can just eat tonight, right? Like, I don't know why. I'm not God. But God designed it that way. God God created me that way. He put me here. He put them there. It is not our job to look at God and argue and say, you should have done this with me differently and should have done that with me differently. No, God has the right as your creator to create you how he designs and place you where he's going to place you. It's a hard fact because we live in a world where we say we just want everything to be made right and to be fair and to be equal. God is not fair and God is not equal, but God is also just. He is just and theres a difference. I don't want to go too far down a rabbit trail today, but I want to just touch on this for a second. When we say that God is just, he doesn't you know there's not going to be equal outcome for you. Just means look here's, here, you got an opportunity to come to faith, to have salvation, to have forgiveness. And once you're presented with that opportunity, you have a choice you're, you're going to make with that. I'm going to say yes or no. Regardless of your background, regardless of, 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 of your income level, and where you're at, like, it, when that's presented to you, you have a chance to say yes or no to that. And those who have said yes to Christ, then you're spending eternity in accordance to the word of God. You're in the kingdom of heaven forever, and and it's great. And for those of us who would say no to that, we're we're spending eternity separate from the Lord. But God is just that he has a, a plan designed to defeat evil, to forgive sin, and to give you an opportunity to encounter that. of affirming biological falsehoods, which can result in disastrous consequences that we have not begun to quantify. Think about this, we have not studied this. We do not know the effects of what we are doing right now by affirming people of different genders when they're not born that way. We have not done long-range studies yet on this. We've got a few things out there, but nothing really that's, that's been long enough concrete. We have no clue what we're doing to future generations right now with what we're messing with. Instead of doing that, you know what we should do? we got to love them. we got to pray for them. And we got to stand with the truth. Hey, I feel you. And I feel where you're coming from. Can I tell you, though, God loves you. He's created you this way for a reason, for a purpose. I believe the closer you'll find, your, your, your walk, the closer you get with your walk with Christ, the more of God's purpose you're going to unlock in your life. See, God's picture for sexuality, specifically for marriage, it's a reflection of our relationship with him through Christ. Look at Ephesians 5. As the scriptures say, a man leaves his father and mother and is joined with his wife. This is a quoting Genesis 24, and they're united as one. It's a great mystery, but what is it? It's an illustration of the way Christ and the church are one. This shows how we're together, we're one. God's desire for men and women is to come together, especially in marriage, and it reflects the spiritual union that Christ has with the church. Two different but complementary entities that come together. The church is not the same as Christ. Christ is not the same as the church, and yet together we're one. God's design from the outset is to create humanity for for men and women to reproduce, to do so in in a marital relationship with him at the center, I'll talk about this here at the end, and to symbolize a spiritual union through the physical act of sex. So God's design features two genders coming together which makes that possible. Our culture today categorizes somewhere in the neighborhood of 90 plus different genders that are out there. I can only reconcile two male and female. It's the only ones I can give you. The advent of multiple genders in this level, it, it, it's not brand new. It's, it's always you know, I mean, this is relatively new, I guess, in the, in the realm of history. We have some things we can look back saying that people 100 years ago struggled with this, maybe even further back, but for the for, by and large this is a relatively newer concept. Here's what's not new though. What's not new is that the enemy because we believe in a real devil and a real enemy, that the enemy has tried from the very beginning to forge what God has made, right? And he seeks to stop what God calls good. He knows if he can prevent spiritual union from taking place, that not only does he mar what God designs, he prevents the second directive that God gave. The second directive was what? was multiplication. He can prevent that. Not only has every person been made in God's image, here's the thing, every person has God-given potential. Every person has God-given potential. And you have that from the moment you're conceived. From the moment that's there, conception happens, there is potential that God has for your life. Listen to what God tells the prophet Jeremiah, Jeremiah 1.5. I knew you before I formed you in your mother's womb. Before you were born, I set you apart, and I appointed you as my prophet to the nations. Now what does that tell me, man? It tells me a couple of things. One, in God's design, he's always known you. About that. Before you knew God, God knew you. And God has always known you. He's known you from the beginning of time. He's known who your personality would be like, where you would live, who your friends would be. God God has known everything about you. Two, it tells me that God has purpose for you. God has a purpose for your life. Not only does God have a purpose for your life, and I don't have time to get into it today, but I, really, I could take you there later to Ephesians. I, I, I believe this, that God has your purpose designed first, and he forms your life around it, not near the way around. He's got your purpose and your reason for being, and then he, he forms your life to fulfill that purpose that he has for you. He told Jeremiah, "I appointed you as a prophet before you were even born. I knew what you would do. I knew what you would your influence. I knew where you would go. Like this is what I laid out for you. And God has the same for your life before you were born. God had a purpose that He put inside of you, that He forms you around. Now I want you to pay attention to this. All right, this potential it's only unleashed through multiplication." I said, "Pastor, wait a minute." We're only born once. It's the exact same question a guy named Nicodemus asked Jesus. It's released through multiplication. It's released when we multiply spiritually as followers of Christ, right? We form relationships with somebody, we lead them to Christ, and what does Jesus do? He saves them for their sins, He forgives their lives. They're born anew in Christ, a new purpose, new life, new vitality multiplication happens, it's unleashed. The spirit of God is on somebody and now the kingdom of God grows. What do they do? They go and do the same thing. They make more disciples, they reach more folks for Christ, and all of a sudden now you have growth that begins happening in God's kingdom. So it does happen spiritually, but it also happens physically. The enemy is trying to stamp this out from the beginning. Now, we know all about spiritual attacks to stop folks from multiplying, right? The enemy is pretty clear about that, trying to prevent you from, you know, reaching folks for Jesus, trying to prevent you as someone who might be on the fence here today, like, well, I don't know if I believe in God or not. He's trying to prevent you from doing that kind of thing, too, saying yes to Christ. We've known about that. But he also has tried to stamp it out physically, right? He's trying to do it physically. His goal is to stop God's design of intimacy, which stops multiplication. And if multiplication is prevented, the potential that God has embedded in every person is stopped. Let me share something with you this morning that some of you in the room may not agree with here today, but I'm just going to be very honest and front with you about this. I'm, I'm pro-life. Now, if you've been coming to radio for a long time, you know that. Because I'm not shy about it. But why am I pro-life? It's got nothing to do with politics or a party or a candidate. You know why I'm pro-life? I'm going to teach you why I'm pro-life here in in, in, in a minute. I'm pro-life because of my faith. Many of our, you, you know, it starts off as a spiritual issue where the enemy tries to stamp out multiplication. I don't know. I don't believe in coincidences. many of our sexual identity issues today, they stem from an enemy uh, who is trying to destroy multiplication before God-given potential is unleashed. Why am I pro-life? Because I believe this. The words that God spoke to Jeremiah are true. Before you're born, God has purpose for your life. God has designs for your life. There's God-given potential placed inside of you. How many millions of individuals have never had the chance to live out their God-given potential because it was ended before they were born. Now, you don't think that is a design from the enemy? I feel for women who find themselves in a place where I'm not sure if I want this pregnancy, the circumstances are not ideal, I'm behind that and around, I, I get all that and I'm there, I am compassionate, I understand that. I would never try to put myself in their shoes, but here's what I also understand. That every person has God-given potential. That life inside of you, boy, the greatest day of my life when my kids are born. When I can see at 10 weeks old, the fingers moving on the ultrasound screen, and the faces, and hear the heartbeat potential life God given potential is there I cannot bring myself to embrace a position which which argues that the enemy is is not at work trying to stop that potential from ever seeing the light of day because I, I I believe he certainly is. How many movers and shakers? How many world changers? How many people who could do incredible things in their communities and their families never had the opportunity to do so because their life was taken from them before they ever got a chance to live it out. Homosexuality cannot reproduce. Pornography can't reproduce. Pedophilia cannot reproduce, right? Recognize I, that, that living according to God's standards is important, but to not have the ability to produce for medical reasons is, is certainly a, a case for some folks, and I get that. You know, Medically, you may not be able to reproduce, I understand that. I'm speaking in broad terms today. I'm not, I'm not being very specific. I'm trying to be pretty general and pretty broad. I understand there's differences out there. there there's exceptions. But God gives His directives in a broad sense. Rule over creation and multiply. It's very broad and very far-reaching. And that's the framework I'm operating in here today, okay? So if you're if you're here today, you don't have the ability to reproduce, or and you've wanted kids, I'm not attacking you. I'm, I'm just trying to stay in that framework that's that's pretty broad. The struggle with sexuality, man, is a spiritual struggle between a God who wants to create life and a devil who wants to destroy it. And I want to make it pretty clear uh, that it is the enemy who is at work. It's not people. I think one of the things the church has done its unfortunate is that we have made people to be the enemy. We target people, right? If you look at church history, it's, it's not perfect. I'm, I'm leading a group right now on Wednesday night, so we're going to go through church history. It's not perfect. There's some pretty tough stuff. Inquisition, right? There's not a lot of good things. And we've made people to be the enemy. Well, people aren't the enemy, right? They're not the enemy. Look what Paul says in Ephesians 6. For we're not fighting against flesh and blood enemies. We're not fighting against other individuals and people. We're fighting against what? Evil rulers and authorities of the unseen world. It's a spiritual battle, right? It's a spiritual battle against the mighty powers in this dark world and against the evil spirits in the heavenly places. The real enemy is not your nephew who might identify as a woman or your daughter's, you know, best friend who just came out. The real enemy is a real devil who wants to destroy all that God has touched. One of the reasons I think we struggle as a church, and I say big C, to address this issue effectively in our, in our world today is, 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 is we've just forgotten that. I think we've forgotten that. We see the enemy at working people, and then we end up treating a person or a group as the culprit. And what happens is that message we send is that we're really against individuals in this group or this kind of person. And that's not true. We're not. Instead of praying, we start protesting and boycotting. Instead of spiritual warfare, we attack people and groups of people. We put scarlet letters on those who struggle with their sexual identity while forgetting that 96% of America is heterosexual. Which just tells me right there that most sexual sin is not committed by uh, other groups, but by heterosexual individuals, right? So I think it's pretty important we don't choose somebody else to be a new leper, all right? We have one enemy in common, and he goes by a lot of names. He goes by the names of the accuser, the father of lies, Satan. Like, he's the one that we're fighting and that we're up against. So every person needs to understand God's original design for sexuality. That every person's created in God's image. It's important. Every person has God-given potential embedded through them. It gets unleashed through multiplication, right? And it's why the enemy tries so hard to stop it. Now, let's jump into the grace. I gave you a lot of truth. Let's go to grace, okay? Here's the tension, right? The passage we're looking at uh, here in a moment, you, you might look at this and say, I don't see a lot of grace in this passage, but hang with me, okay? Because there is grace here. It's found in 1 Corinthians 6, through 10. A lot of people use it for the truth side to argue against things. They don't read all the way. I'm going to read all the way through to verse 11. We're going to start with verses 9 and 10 first. Paul says this, don't you realize that those who do wrong will not inherit the kingdom of God? Like, don't fool yourselves, man. Those who indulge in sexual sin or who worship idols or commit adultery or are male prostitutes or practice homosexuality or are thieves or greedy people or drunkards or abusive or cheap people. It's a long list, ain't it? Like, don't. You realize, none of these guys will inherit God's kingdom. None of them. Now, a lot's been said about this passage, okay? A lot's been said about the Greek language that was written in. I just want to clear a few things up. First of all, homosexual is explicitly mentioned in the Greek language as well in this passage. It describes active and passive partners in a homosexual relationship. So it's, it's there. But the term pornea, where we get our term pornography from, that's, that's important. And that's, that's inside there as well. And everything and anything that's sexually moral outside of heterosexual marriage is referred to in that sense in Scripture. It's the same word that Christ uses in Mark 7. when He talks about having corruption within you. Look at what he says in Mark 7, verse number 20. Then he, says Jesus, he added, it is what comes from the inside that defiles you. For from within, out of a person's heart, come evil thoughts and sexual immorality and theft and murder and adultery and greed and wickedness and deceit and lustful desires and envy and slander and pride and foolishness. You get the idea that we're all screwed here, right? Like, yeah, we are all sinners and come short of God's glory. That's that's kind of the point, right? All these vile things, come from within and they are what defile you. Remember the potential that God has inside of us, right? See, sin corrupts that potential and destroys us from the inside out. Sexual sin is it's on the same level, man, as abuse and idolatry and, and and everything else you want to think about, right? Alcoholism, lying, you, you you name it. It's on the same level. And what we do is we treat sin in different tiers. I just I've never been that guy. I know some folks will say there are different levels, and I'm like, nah. I think it's all the same. Like if you live a life of sin and you're not repentant, you're in the same boat. It doesn't matter what sin you want to throw out there. We're all in the same boat here. Okay. We, we got we to we pay attention to that. And that leads this to this fact right here. I said it a moment ago. I was like, hey, we're all screwed. We are all screwed. That's why every person needs Christ's redemption. Everybody. Everyone needs redemption. We all need Jesus. None of us can walk in the room today and say, yeah, I'm pretty much good on my own. No, no. All of us need the salvation work of Christ in our lives. Doesn't matter who you are or what you struggle with. So as followers of Jesus, our job is to affirm each person has value, right? They're created in God's image. That's important. No, we can't do those. We can't affirm sin. I can't do that. I can't affirm sin, no matter what type of sin it is in their lives. It's also not my place, and I think this is pretty important to place a judgment on somebody either. My job is to show grace, but to show grace which leads people to connect with Jesus because it's the power of Christ, not my argument, not my stance on something. It is the power of Jesus that changes a person's heart and changes their life and brings them the connection with God the Father. The same God who broke the curse of alcoholism is the same God who can set free somebody from sexual sin. I said a moment ago, this this passage in 1 Corinthians, a lot of folks like it, and they, they use it to justify all kinds of stuff. You know what a lot of folks don't do? They don't read verse 11. Verse 11 is the most powerful verse. What does Paul say? Some of you were once like that. But you're cleansed, and you're made holy, and you're made right with God by calling on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God like well some of the corinthian christians were like the behaviors that paul listed some of them were drunkards and some of them were liars some were homosexuals some were cheats who couldn't keep their marriage together some were all hey any kind of list you want to put out there hey some of you guys you were like that right but now you found jesus and when you encounter christ he changes everything changes you you're never the same the inside out You don't identify yourself as, you know, hey, I'm Bob, I'm a lying Christian today. (laughs) I'm a drunk Christian. I'm a gay Christian. No, you know what we are? We are redeemed. We are saved. We are set free. We are redeemed by the blood of Christ. We are set free by Christ. We have hope and forgiveness and life in Jesus Christ. Your identity is not found in what you were and who you were before Jesus. It is now found in who you are in Christ and who you are in Jesus. He's embedded supernatural God given potential inside of you before you were ever conceived. You were created in God's image with God's fingerprints all over your life, just like all of humanity. You're in the same boat. You need a redemption too. We all do. God's designed for sexuality that you live to be the man or the woman that God has created you to be. Now here's where we're gonna address the other side because I talked about it a second ago. This is not all about where you fall on the LGBTQ plus spectrum here. I mean, sexuality deals with pornography, deals with heterosexual sin too, right? And his design is for you to engage in sexual standards that he sets in heterosexual marriage. And and this is gonna make me sound old school. And this, some of you in the room, you, won't, you probably disagree with me about it. You won't like it. It's fine. But I get this question a lot from people. Well, why, why can't we just live together? Can't we just do that? Why, why, why can't we express our love sexually with the right person? And I can answer this question so many different ways. Uh, it, it, my position is not a favorable position. I'm in the, the vast minority at, at this point now in our culture, even within church circles. But I, I, I thought about how to answer. I'm going to answer it like this today. I, I want you to think about this idea of, of, of getting involved sexually before you're married to somebody, okay? Think about it like this. There's no commitment made before you and God that binds you together yet, right? It doesn't exist. It hasn't happened yet, okay? Uh, you, you don't have it when you're dating. Uh, you, you don't even have it when you're engaged yet, You know, you haven't taken those vows before the Lord yet. You haven't even gotten that far spiritually yet. See, what we do is we we look at marriage as an institution that we physically have to do something to. God looks at it through a whole different lens. God views it through a spiritual prism. Spiritually, are you right before me? That's, That's the way that God views this thing. It's not about the ceremony and all that kind of stuff. It's about where you're at spiritually. You're free to walk away without any consequence long-term. And, and, you know, I, I get it. Like, if you're engaged with somebody and the engagement gets broken off, it, it's heart-wrenching and there's all kinds of... But you know what? Long-term, okay, you're fine. Especially if kids aren't involved, like, you're good. It's not the same as somebody who's been married for 10, 15 years and they get a divorce, right? Those long-term impacts are entirely different. Why? Because there's a different type of commitment that takes place once you get married from where you were before. you have to ask yourself this question. I think it's an important question to ask. Do you want to fully give yourself over to somebody who they may love you now or be with you now, but they're not fully wholly committed just yet who can walk out of your life as quickly as they walk in? Do you want to do that? When you have sex with multiple partners, you do not forget them. You remember how they looked, remember how they felt, remember those moments together where they happened at. Different triggers in your memory will pop up. In the age of social media, it's even worse because things hit your newsfeed, right? You have all the emotions that begin to flood back. And when you get married, they don't go away. They follow you in your marriage you carry those with you into your marriage. And you realize that okay, I, I cannot fully, completely give myself over to my spouse. Maybe in the same way they can give themselves over to me if, if they kept themselves from marriage, right? Because I've already given part of me away to this person, and part of me away to that person, and part of me away to this person over here. And you realize that you can't get those moments back, those feelings back, they're gone. Why? Because God's design was for you to be with one person and to be intimate with that person. His design was for you to be as committed to them as Christ is committed to the church. Every part of your body, your mind, your heart, your soul, you give that over to God, you give it over to your spouse. I've been in ministry for, this will be year number 15, I think. I have never once come across a single couple that regretted waiting until they were married to give themselves over to their spouse never once i could write an entire book on the stories of people who regretted doing it before they were married whole different kinds whole different thing i could tell you all kinds of stories and heartache and heartbreak you so a the pastor just you know I just, I just don't know about this. Can I just give you a promise real quick? If you're here today and this is kind of how you're living and what you're doing, of, kind of talk to you as a pastor for a moment? I know I'm, this whole series have gone long, but if we're going long or get today. Just listen to me real quick. I, I, in dealing with people who are living together or, or you're, you're sexually active in your relationship, I've never called people out. I've never told them they're going to hell. <laughs> I've never done those things. Um, I've always given people an opportunity. Hey, you should pray about it. Most of the time when they take me up on that, you know what happens? The Holy Spirit convicts them. And they come back and they say, Pastor, what do we do? I said, well, uh, God does not care about your ceremony. Uh, the is cool. God doesn't really care about that. God cares about your spirit. Let's do this. Let's get married. Right, right, right here? Absolutely. Do it in my office. Get married, plan your ceremony, have everything. Why? Because as far as God is concerned, your heart and your spirit need to be alignment. Everything else, celebrate and have fun and go crazy. But let's get this part done first. I've had a lot of couples I've done that with over the years. We've had couples in this church, multiple couples in this church who live together since we started. And every conversation that I've had with them, I've told them the same thing. I I can't condone what you're doing. I don't love you any different. I don't look at you any different. I'm still here for you. I'm still your pastor. And my prayer is that the Holy Spirit will guide you in the right direction. You know why? Because I can't force you to make a decision. Only God can, can, can convict your heart, and only you can make your choices. I can't do it for you. But I can try my best to show you, here's, here's what I believe God's Word teaches, the patterns that God's Word sets for us, and here's what I would do if I was your, you know, in your shoes as your spiritual pastor and, 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 and leader. This is what I would do. Z, come on up. I know today was a tough topic. Man, it's, it's not easy to talk about this. Uh, every time I talk about this topic, and I've done it for several years, it's always the same. It's just difficult to get through. And I think the reason is because it's, it's so personal for so many of us. But you asked for it. <laughs> it's the name of the series, right? You asked for it. It was the number one submitted question that we had. Uh, I want to leave you with a few thoughts as we wrap up. First, I want you to know that temptation is not sin. That's important. Temptation isn't sin, okay? Uh, if you experience temptation, same-sex attraction, changing gender, sexes, uh, temptation with pornography, temptation with sexual you know, activity with your boyfriend, whatever. If you experience stuff like that, uh, hey, listen, you're in the same boat as everybody else experiences temptation. Where you cross the line is when you begin to act on it. And it's not just the physical act, because Christ makes that pretty clear. It's not about just physically acting, it's, it's your heart. So once you've made the decision in your heart, I'm doing this. You've, you've crossed the line at that point. Hey, if you think in your heart, <laughs> If you're angry for the wrong reason, you murdered somebody, right? If, if, if in your heart you looked at somebody with lust and like, hey, I want her, I want him, you've already cheated on your marriage, he says. So like, if, if once you make that decision in your heart, this is what I'm going to do, I'm going to act on like, it, then, then it kind of crosses the line. But temptation itself is not sin. If it were so, Christ would not have lived a sinless life, right? Two, I want you to know this. Everybody's welcome at Radiant Church. I want to make that pretty clear, too, Right? So whether you, structure, you know, struggle with sexuality or you know people who are struggling with sexuality and they're looking for answers or a church to be a part of or they process stuff, this is a, a safe place to do that in. They can do that here. No one will judge them. No one will, you know, hey, yell at them or whatever. Like We love you, we care about you, and we believe that God will change you. We are, we are asking God to work in your heart and in your life. Why? Because he changed us. If I went around the room and we got everyone's testimony, their story of what God did in their hearts and their lives, what they were before Christ, some of these people it would stun you when you would hear what how they lived. We've all been there. We all need Jesus. And so everybody's welcome to be a part of this church. Why? Because we believe that you matter to God. That every person matters to God. That God values you. That God loves you. This church will value you and love you. And I will do the same as your pastor. Barry, has to close your eyes if you have lived here today. God, I thank you. I thank you for uh, your son. Whose forgiveness and grace and mercy covers every wrong, every lifestyle who's always there for us. He never turns us away. This is a tough topic to talk about. Lord, my prayer is that our hearts are changed here today. Maybe we came in today thinking one thing, and I pray, Lord, we walk out of here in alignment with your word and your will and who you are. Perhaps we're here today, we're struggling with sexual sin. Lord, my prayer is that for those who are struggling with sexual sin, whatever it might be, um, that, Lord, man, they they find that grace in you and that forgiveness in you. And I pray, Lord, they find the strength to resist it. Uh, Father, I, I pray for those who... You know, they're unsure of, hey, how do I live in in, in this grace and truth tension? It's so tempting to go all grace or all truth. Lord, I pray your Holy Spirit would keep us on the right pathway. And we live our lives standing in the truth, right? But also loving and caring for people. And Lord, knowing it's not our place to try to convince somebody or to try to, you know, force them into a, you know, coerce them into a decision. Lord, that's your Holy Spirit's job is to give that. Our job is to point the way to Jesus. Our job is to love. Our job is to care for those who are not in lockstep with you. And my prayer, Lord, is that we live in this tension of grace and truth and we live in it, Lord, successfully. I thank you that you have parameters and standards that you set for us, not because you don't love us, but because you do love us and you want what's best for us. I thank you, Lord, that we all have God-given potential. Every person in this room has God-given potential. They have a purpose. There's a reason they're here, God, and you you have something you want to unleash in their lives. And I pray, Lord, they they live to that purpose. They discover that purpose in you and uh, do incredible things for your kingdom and your glory as a result of that. Thank you for who you are, for what you've done, for what you're going to do in our hearts and our lives. We pray all this in your name. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you have any questions or would like to reach out to us, you can do so by emailing us at media at radiantchurchsc.com or visit one of our social accounts on Facebook, Instagram, If you like what you heard today, subscribe to our podcast so you don't miss any future episodes and give us a five star rating on the podcast platform that you listen to. We hope you have an amazing rest of your day.